All right, hello, and welcome back to a, another episode of the Chase Thomas Podcast, boys and girls, where I am still the aforementioned Chase Thomas, and I am coming to you live from Knoxville, Tennessee. Uh, on today's edition of the Chase Thomas Podcast, I'll be joined by Stats by Will. Uh, great, great college basketball conversation where we hit on uh, a multitude of topics, whether it was Louisville's Chris Mack and his job security, Butler and Georgetown struggling in the Big East, uh, Tennessee getting a hard-fought win over South Carolina in their big matchup in Lexington against uh, Kentucky over the weekend, uh, some players that jump out to Will uh, in the last week or so, plus uh, all kinds of other good college basketball content. Um, guys, he's likes under the radar right now. Uh, Texas Tech having just a great run uh, to this point that nobody saw coming. USC and UCLA battling out in Southern California. All that good stuff with Will to start things off. Then we'll have Sam Monson of Pro Football Focus, uh, the pro, the PFF NFL show. Uh, it was great talking to Sam about a variety of NFL top picks like the Texans firing David Culley, the Bills being hard to forecast, the Titans are Super Bowl bound in the AFC, why it hasn't worked for Tua uh, in Miami, and the Joe Burrow versus Justin Herbert uh, debate. Um, also, we'll wrap with Arif Hassan of The Athletic, where he covers the Minnesota Vikings, to talk about the Vikings cleaning house with Spielman and Zimmer, um, why it happened now, who might replace both Zimmer and Spielman, and uh, all kinds of other stuff. Will they flip to an offensive mind? Why did things go wrong? Uh, draft picks that did not uh, work out in the last couple of years. Is this a full teardown or... Uh, a reload situation in Minnesota. So we, we cover all of that great, uh, great fun talking to Arif, Sam, and Will on a variety of sports topics on this edition of the Chase Thomas podcast. Uh, before we get started with today's show, I would also like to mention how you can support this very program. It starts with leaving a quick five-star rating and a review on Apple or Spotify if that is your preferred app of choice for listening to this very podcast. Five stars and a rating takes like five seconds. Um, make sure to go visit chasethomaspodcast.com for access to all of my previous episodes and make sure to subscribe to the Sports Renaissance Man newsletter at sportsrenaissanceman.substack.com. Just type in your email and uh, right there, just that easy, free. And as always, you can email this very program at chasethomaspodcast at gmail.com. Again, that is chasethomaspodcast gmail.com follow me on twitter at chase double underscore thomas and like the facebook page at facebook.com slash chase thomas writer all right uncle darren let's ride chase thomas podcast the chase thomas podcast <laughs> um my nephew needs me to record see i hate i already hate it i hate it all right hello and welcome back to a another episode of the chase thomas podcast where i am now joined oh yeah stats by will it's Mr. Will Warren in Knoxville, Tennessee. We again, we're not doing this in person. We're not doing it at our our coffee shop that we that we like over here. That I am now a a frequent visitor of. Uh, Will, good evening. How are you? Doing well. I uh, am glad to hear that you have been partaking in Remedy Coffee very frequently lately. It's a wonderful little coffee shop. It's my weekend routine. So I go on Saturday and Sunday mornings now. Um, at weekdays, I don't do, I just stick with the black coffee and uh, my morning uh, routine. But on uh, on the weekend, it's, the, it's, it's my treat, Will. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> well, how is uh, how's everything going for you since we last recorded last week? 
Uh, pretty well. Nothing crazy. We made it out of Snowmageddon without anything big. Mm-hmm. Uh, the whole inch of snow we got amazingly did not derail anyone's cars or uh, cause mass chaos, as everyone here pretends it does. Mm. So all good on my end. Well, I do believe it's supposed to potentially snow this weekend, right? Yes, yeah, Sunday Sunday evening. My wife is a teacher, so uh, you know where my rooting interests lie here. <laughs> <laughs> so it's Sunday evening, and this will conclude our uh, weather forecast conversation on this very podcast although i will say uh well my my family's coming in this weekend uh for a couple days i think on saturday and my mother texted me i think it was yesterday afternoon and she's gonna be mad that i'm sharing this out loud but um she texted me and was just like hey uh is it supposed to snow in knoxville this weekend uh and when and I, <laughs> I laughed and I didn't say anything for a while. And I, I talked to the sports renaissance woman about it. And I was like, uh, does my mother think that I'm God? How does this work? Uh, <laughs> well, a, she has Google. The amount of time it took for her to text me and ask me when it was supposed to snow in Knoxville. She could just hit the weather app. She's got an iPhone. Yeah. Just scroll over Knoxville. Look at the weather forecast. And B, how am I supposed to know when it's going to snow? How am I supposed to have any kind of context as to when it is going to snow? I am no meteorologist. Absolutely not. Follow your local National Weather Service. Right. Love my mother, to be clear. Love my mother. Shout out to mom. But that question sent me back where I was just like, what is my mother asking me? You're asking too much (laughs) from me. (laughs) A little insane. But uh, there you go. That that concludes Chase Chase and mom time on this very podcast. But... Will, um, we have some stuff to talk about in college basketball. Before we get to that, don't forget, folks, you can check out Will's great work at statsbywill.com. So go check out uh, the website if you've not already done so. A must-read for all college basketball fans, not just UT fans, but it's a collection of posts. So go check that out if you've not already done so. Follow him on Twitter at uh, statsbywill. And uh, make sure you go check out uh, com today. Access to all of my previous episodes on that page. Go hit it. Uh, sportsrenaissanceman.substack.com daily newsletter yeah free just type in your email and you'll get that and if you like listening to will and myself talk college basketball every week on this very feed make sure you leave us a five-star rating and a review on apple Podcasts or spotify or wherever you get your podcasts uh will so we need to talk about the biggest upsets uh this past week in college basketball what uh what piqued your interest it was a little bit of a blood weekend in college basketball, <laughs> I thought. I was a little taken aback by some of the upsets, two or three in particular, and it's extended into this actual uh, mid, these actual midweek games, too. But um, I singled out four. The big one, obviously, Miami over Duke, which I don't think anybody you know, could have told you they saw coming. Um, it was surprising enough that this was more or less even the whole way, uh, but it is – not to use this term lightly, but it is a bit of a fluke. Uh, Miami got outshot by a little bit. They were heavily out-rebounded, and they shot fewer free throws and made fewer. But they made it home with a W, and good for them, because they were plus 12 in turnover margin. Hmm. Turned it over on a quarter of their possessions. Really bad. And, I mean, you can say what you want about, like, you know, in-season basketball is weird. Conference play has a lot of surprises, um, anything kind of can happen night to night within reason. 
But this is a really bad loss. I mean, anytime you have a team this talented dropping one at home to this Miami team, which is not like a not as bad of a Miami team as I think maybe some of us anticipated preseason like myself. But I, I don't think we would say that, you know, on this very day, Miami is likely to make the NCAA tournament, for example. Hmm. So at best, that's kind of like a home loss to an NIT squad. Um, I mean, yes, it's it's nice and all that they beat Duke. It's nice and all that they're 5-1 and one in the ACC. But I don't quite trust it yet. Uh, I mean, to be frank, losing to Florida State is not a great sign, uh, especially this Florida State uh, edition. So I guess I'm in wait-and-see mode with them. But, you know, good for Miami, good for that program. Uh, extremely rare that a team wins a game where it's, you know, they've only won one of the four factors, and the fourth factor they won was turnover percentage. But good for them. Uh, the other one that is much funnier is Missouri beating Alabama, which I can't even read off of my script here without mm-hmm. starting laughing, um, because it's made even funnier by Missouri getting wiped off the face of the earth by Arkansas yesterday. <laughs> to tune. I think it was well, it was 89-45, 87-43, one of those. Yeah, I mean, that was the biggest story with Musselman getting injured, right? Yeah, I know. And he had surgery, so he's missing their next couple. Mm-hmm. But I, I couldn't believe how easily Mizzou worked over Alabama on the boards. That I mean, I understand like Missouri has some length. They have Kobe Brown, who I really like, and is basically the only reason to watch that team on a given night. Um, and I mean, you know, Missouri got a few favorable home calls. Every single SEC team does, and I can I might explore that in a future post. But it was still really really bad for Alabama to lose that game. I mean. You know, say what you want about predictive analytics and what they mean long term, but by pretty much all accounts, Missouri is either the worst or second worst team in the SEC. And on BartTorvik.com right now, they rank 265th right now out of every team in America. That's one spot ahead of UMass Lowell. So, I mean, that's obviously affected when you lose by 44 to uh, a not spectacular Arkansas team. But that is that's going to stand out as a really bad loss come tournament time. And I, I mean, I know Alabama beat Gonzaga and Houston, but you look at these last few weeks. Uh, I mean, you put in the Iona loss, the the other poor losses they've taken. I mean, really, we got to talk about them almost losing to Tennessee with Tennessee missing two of their three best players. Um, it just doesn't feel like this particular Alabama team has it in the way that last year's did. Uh, the it, the defense is still very, very inconsistent night to night. They're not forcing turnovers. Uh, they're not really you know forcing many bad shots. Missouri got off a lot of clean three-point looks. The, it feels like they're about the fifth best SEC team, which is totally fine, nothing shameful. Probably a low-end top 25 squad, but obviously not the upper tier side we were expecting when you beat Gonzaga and Houston. Hmm. Huh. Um, well, let's, uh, let's talk about some January surprises. We are, uh, about near the midway point in, uh, in the, the month of January conference play, conference play, like you alluded to is well underway, but will, what, uh, what has surprised you? What are some January surprises, uh, at least uh, in terms of conference play to this point? Uh, it goes with some good and bads. I think a, a few good ones here. Villanova, 
Um, it might it might not have popped nationally, but I mean they beat Xavier last night on the road, which is not an easy place to win. And this is a very good Xavier team, and I mean they've blown out or beaten four good to very good Big East opponents in a row. They beat Creighton by 34 at home, and this is not a bad Creighton team. Um, Wisconsin has three straight quadrant one wins. Uh, Texas Tech beat Baylor this week after beating Kansas over the weekend. Really good for them. Um, I, I don't. We'll get to them more later here in a second, so we can discuss that in depth. But they're an interesting side, and uh, Penn State is not one that's going to get many national headlines. Mm. But I think they're quietly decent. I don't think they're going to make the state. I think they're probably like a year one NIT team, which is better than expected. Uh, still probably headed for like nine and eleven in Big Ten play, but they beat Indiana and Northwestern back to back. And I know on paper that doesn't sound great, but that's Indiana at home and Northwestern on the road. Not an easy pair to pull off, especially with how well Northwestern uh, plays defense typically. Um, that's impressive for a first-year head coach. And then a couple of negative surprises. Uh, one of these I should have known better than to be surprised by, but Louisville sucks. That's a bad basketball team. They're so much worse than I could have imagined, and Chris Mack genuinely should be on the hot seat, which I would not have guessed, I would say, three years ago. Because hmm. that first season, and really the moment in that Duke game in 2019 when they were winning by 23, I was like, oh yeah, Chris Mack is going to freaking kill it there. Uh, and even up to like a, a year and a half ago, I was like, yeah, Chris Mack is going to kill it there. And it's just not working. Um, Florida is the more interesting surprise because I, I had started to kind of come around on them. And if we're being frank here, it is really hard to fault anybody for losing to Alabama, Auburn, and LSU. But when you lose to all three back-to-back, when you really needed one, you just really needed one win out of those three and you couldn't get any, that's pretty painful. Um one of just winning one of those would have helped erase some of the pain of that Texas Southern home debacle where they lost by 15. Currently uh, projected by Ken Palm at 18 and 13, nine and nine in the SEC, and it's like, well, will that really get you into the tournament? I mean, that doesn't feel great on paper. Maybe they beat like a Tennessee or an or a LSU or whoever down the road, but I mean. If they miss the tournament, I, I think Mike White probably should be gone. Mm. Yeah, that that would be interesting. Do you believe in the Notre Dame rise? What have they won? Five straight? Six straight? It's kind of weird. I don't like it because I was <laughs> out on them because I believed in them preseason and looked mm-hmm. like a fool when they were losing to Boston College by 16. Who so really now stinks I don't this year, to too, yeah. But... I think tentatively they do look better. They, they've they've clearly improved offensively the last few games. Uh, I, I think things are hopefully for them coming around. Um, the real tell will be how they stack up against Virginia Tech in this next game. I, I don't think this Virginia Tech squad is great. I think they're an NCAA tournament team, but they're beatable. Uh, that's on the road, so it's tough. But, I mean, if Notre Dame keeps that within a couple of possessions or even pulls off the road upset – I feel like I'm willing to believe in them as like possibly a fringe in say tournament team. And Lord knows the ACC needs another decent team. Yeah. 
That's true. I mean, the ACC is just weird this year, especially. I mean, Georgia Tech fell off a cliff, and it's unfortunate because Josh Pastner is the most likable coach in America. And uh, if you do not watch every Josh Pastner press conference, uh, you're missing out. Uh, He's been on the pod. Uh, Love Josh Pastner, my favorite coach in college basketball. Um, Just a delightful human. But, (laughs) yeah, I just... I don't know. I I wonder about that, but we're also thinking about like hot seat names and you were throwing out Chris Mack, but like someone I I wonder who would you say is more on the hot seat at this point? And it's actually in the big East because the big East is interesting at the moment, especially with Providence playing as well as they have. And you mentioned Creighton, but like a team, two teams that I think might make a change, or at least at some point you have to like be honest of like, okay, has this run its course? And unfortunately one's an alum, Patrick Ewing at Georgetown, uh, they're now six and six on the season, lost two straight. And then Butler, where it's still not working for LaVal Jordan's team. Who Do you, do you think there's an, a realistic possibility both could uh, be on the hot seat and both, or at least one could be gone after the year? I think LaVal is for sure in the hot seat because, you know, we discussion on him and Butler as a program preseason where, you know, this is year five. I think obviously they would have made the tournament had we had one in 2020, but you know, fair or not, the expectation at Butler now is a little more than make the tournament. What's going to be 40% of the time. And with how bad they were last year, I mean, yes, eight and 12 doesn't look awful on paper, but they were a dreadful team to watch night tonight. And this year's team looks worse. That's a situation, but I mean, Georgetown, is the more interesting case to me because I think they just have to be honest with themselves. Uh, the, the Patrick Ewing era has been very bad outside of what we can now pretty safely call one luck filled horseshoe falling out of the butt run in the big East tournament to make the field of 65 or 64 where they were promptly blown out. I mean, this is year five for him the conference records are five and thirteen, nine and nine, five and thirteen, seven and nine, and currently they're projected to go five and thirteen this year. Uh, or sorry, five and uh, fifteen. That's not sustainable. That, I mean, I think they have to make a change. Mm. Uh, well, teams that are not going to make a change, but they made a change because their head coach left for Austin State in State, Mr. Chris Beard. Uh, Texas Tech having a little bit of a renaissance type year under their first-time coach, who I had questions about coming into the year. I don't remember where you stood uh, primarily on the Red Raiders after losing Beard, but um, they're having a they're having quite a season, and they're on quite the run right now. Uh, what do you make of the Red Raiders at the moment? That's a fun team to watch. I mean, so objectively, they do not have a very good off. I mean, they shoot the ball pretty well, and they rebound it very well, but terrible at the free throw line and they commit a lot of turnovers it's just such a frustrating offense when you know that it could be like i mean they're kind of borderline top 50 right now they could be top 30 if they just got a couple more things right but it kind of doesn't matter because the defense is looking really really good i mean they're fourth on ken palm right now uh i think a lot of people really believe in them and it makes sense that the amazing defense has remained because mark adams was such a huge part of what made that tick uh, I mean, preseason, I felt like I was relatively high on them and thought of them as low-end top 25, but even I've been a little surprised at some of these wins. I mean, it was it was one thing to pick off Tennessee uh, the way they did in New York City, but for them to beat Kansas and Baylor back-to-back, is that's pretty crazy. I mean, that's two top five wins in a row. Uh, I would love to see a stat on how many times 
a team has beaten two top five teams in back-to-back games. That just doesn't happen. Um, but with that, it's not really sustainable to beat two top five teams back-to-back when your offense is what their offense is. Uh, I, I think the defense, the, the level of shots they give up from deep is insane. It's 50.5% of all attempts are coming from three, which is the highest rate by any power conference team. Um, I, I like this Texas Tech team. I think that they are one of the 20 best. I wouldn't go higher than that. But I'm thinking in the context of March where, say that they draw a 13 or 14 seed that gets white hot from three and it's like, oh, yeah, we're going to take 33s. And look at that. We hit 13. What happens then? Do they have the offense to overcome that is my question. Hmm. Yeah, well, we'll see ultimately what happens there with the Red Raiders. But it's a fun story at the very least. Um, another fun story, USC. They're moving up in the AP, highest AP ranking in a really, really long time, several decades. Um, and this is after losing their best player, Evan Mobley, uh, in the top three of uh, the lottery this past year. And he is just a, a force <laughs> in Cleveland and a lot of fun to watch. I love watching Evan Mobley play basketball. But um, when you when you contrast, when you compare and contrast UCLA and USC, who do you who do you believe in more? Who have you enjoyed watching more, and uh, who do you think the numbers bear out is probably the the more realistic Final Four team? Ugh, my real answer here is Arizona, <laughs> but um, I would take you. I would take UCLA over USC. I think UCLA is just a, a better overall team, uh, better overall offensively. Um, I'm really curious to see how UCLA reacts. I mean, they basically took a month off of basketball. Like Mm -hmm. I know that they sort of restarted, they beat Cal over the weekend, but I want to see, you know, how can they hold up as they get back into the routine of playing like three games in seven days and whatnot. So I'm, I'm curious to see that dynamic, but on USC specifically, I like this team. I don't love them. Mm -hmm. Um, Who do you like? Any turnovers defensively, which is a problem. And they are horrendous at free throw shooting. They're 354th in America in free throw shooting right now. In is that bad? Percentage. Yeah, that's, that's, that's bad. bad. 340? Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, but I still, it, it was a little bizarre to me. They got all the way to fifth. I kind of got it. But, I mean, still, it's a fun story. I like watching them play. I think their defense, uh, especially inside the perimeter, is just astounding. I mean, I, I know they retained the other Mobley brother, Isaiah, and Chavez Goodwin, and a couple other big pieces from the Elite Eight team last year, but it still should not have come together this well already. I mean, that's a nice surprise. So I, I'm interested to see what happens uh, when they play you know, Arizona, UCLA, et cetera, because I think what's kind of crazy right now is uh, Oregon, maybe Oregon figures it out, maybe they don't. But let's say that they don't in time for literally two days from now. Mm-hmm. USC is not going to play a top 50 team again until February 5th hmm. at Arizona. And then they play their final month is a little crazy. They still got to make up one against Arizona at home. And we'll see if that happens. But even if they don't, they play Arizona, Washington State and UCLA twice in their final seven. So that'll be a really interesting rush to the finish to see how well they measure up. Yeah. I'm excited for it. Um, it's time for something that you're not excited for. Uh, a quick conversation on the Tennessee offense. Uh, they went by 20 against USC uh, this week, but uh, the other USC. 
And then we've got a big time matchup on the road in Lexington on Saturday at uh, one o'clock. So I'm very excited for Tennessee UK uh, this weekend with Tennessee football being uh, being a thing of the past and a thing of the past for for several more months. Um, what did you make of the game uh, this week? And uh, what are you most excited about watching uh, against Kentucky on Saturday? Well, I think you know there's some mildly encouraging things about. Uh, Tuesday's evening affair in some aspects. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's really hard to be kind. Um, I, I would like to focus on the defense first because I think the defense is legitimately amazing. Uh, you, you look at this Tennessee unit, you lose Eve Pons from last year's team, probably the greatest shot blocker in Tennessee basketball history. No disrespect to CJ Black, mm-hmm. but probably the best. And to, to lose him and to lose Keon, who's an amazing perimeter defender, and Jaden Springer, who, when engaged, is also really good. And to come out with a better defense is just crazy. I mean, they're number six in America in turnovers forced right now. Hmm. Uh, I mean, it helps that South Carolina decided it was a great night Tuesday to miss, I think, eight of 11 free throws. But they held South Carolina to their fourth worst offensive efficiency since Ken Palm has existed. That's, you know, 21 seasons of basketball for a power conference team to do that against another power conference team, regardless of how good or bad South Carolina is, is seriously really impressive. So that's all good. But this offense does kind of suck, doesn't it? (laughs) I mean, it's good that we finally got what I would call a normal bell curve game where Tennessee shot 33.3% from downtown, the seven for 21. But there's still the issues of they're turning it over more than you would like. Uh, They had the free throw issues that were kind of mostly Kennedy Chandler, but it seemed like everybody on the roster missed at least one free throw. Um, that's going to have to be cleaned up. Yeah, I mean, when when this month started, and I'm counting Alabama as part of this uh, as part of this month, my theory on it was that obviously Tennessee's not going to win all three, and most likely Tennessee's not going to win two. But you really need to win one of these on the road to like keep pace in the SEC, and really, to be honest, keep pace for a top four seed. Because I think at this point, the SEC, I wouldn't say is lost, but you're going to have a really hard time battling like LSU and Auburn and you know, even Kentucky for the that top position. But you can still hold off Alabama and you know Mississippi State rest for number four. So uh, Tennessee really needs this game, and I think it really is we, – we kind of make basketball a more complicated game than it needs to be at times. It's really just going to be like, can Tennessee hit open threes or can they not? Because they haven't really in a few weeks, but, I mean, there's too much shooting talent on the roster not to – and against a Kentucky team that is going to be hard to score on uh, at times, uh, they've given up points at the rim, but really haven't given up anything from like five to 20 feet. Uh, you're going to have to hit threes. I mean, that was how Kentucky has had some struggles defensively this season. I mean, against LSU, LSU hit nine. Uh, Notre Dame only got seven, but they were taking a lot of attempts and using those attempts to clear up uh, space inside the perimeter. Tennessee has got to shoot early and often. And I mean, to be honest here, I'm looking at a number of like Tennessee's going to hit nine or more threes to come home. Mm. If they get to nine, I feel like the chances are pretty good. Okay. Do you have a prediction? Do you think we ultimately take care of Kentucky on Saturday? No, Uh, (laughs) but, um, 
so well, my prediction is Kentucky by three. So my my honest take is that it's like a weighted coin flip. Okay. And I would say like Kentucky probably wins this game six out of ten times. Tennessee four. So if you just have one of your four on Saturday, it's a great day, and you can leave go home happy. The most likely event is Kentucky winning, but this kind of comes down to a, a thing of like you have to get past the stats and just look at like well. Of all coaches in the SEC, bizarrely, Rick Barnes has been far and away the best at beating John Calipari. And it's it's hard to exactly explain why. I think some of it is just like voodoo magic or whatever. But for whatever reason, Tennessee's won at Rupp three out of four tries now. I mean, it could very well be four out of five Saturday, which is a crazy thing to think about. But, I mean, they're going to have to get a good effort from deep. And they're going to have to really emphasize their advantage in the turnovers department. Uh, to come home with a W. Mm. Well, let's let's wrap on something that's very near and dear to your heart. It's a uh, statistics. Well, so give me some stats that uh, jumped out to you in the last couple of days. All right, I'm going to dedicate my final segment here to a player that probably most people who listen haven't seen, uh, and because this team plays in the West Coast, so it's obviously hard to stay up for the games if you live in the hell time zone like we do. <laughs> it really is, man. I the, I the, the only interest I have in moving to the West Coast is strictly for sports. Mm-hmm. It, it would just be delightful. I don't... I hope that my West Coast fam, especially the West Coast fam who are listening to this, just appreciate how good you have it when it comes to sporting events. We had national title game that was going to wrap up around like midnight our time and uh yeah like this it's not fun it, it is not a fun experience having uh sports on the east coast no not at all but to to dedicate this segment uh, i'm talking about orlando robinson at fresno state okay uh this guy is awesome he's a seven footer uh kind of gaining some NBA steam now, uh, who's not only draining 37.5% of his threes, sitting 57% of twos, and his, if you want the basic numbers, uh, they're pretty darn good. 19.8 points per game, 8.5 rebounds per game, 1.4 blocks per game, and 1.2 steals. Hmm. Those are some pretty darn good numbers. And all he's got to do is get up, you know, two-tenths of a point per game higher and he can join an exclusive group of 10 players in the last 13 years to go 28-1-1. A couple of players in this exclusive category you might recognize, Zion Williamson and Pascal Siakam. So I highly recommend watching Fresno State. They don't have the signature win yet, and it's going to be a little bit before they play a team where you can say, hey, that's a signature win. But like Friday, January 28th, they play Boise State at home. You know, February 11th, they play at Colorado State. A couple of those games could be huge for them and huge for their tournament potential. And I really want this guy in the tournament. Mm. Will, what can the good folks check out from you this week across StatsByWill.com? There's always the Tennessee basketball content. Every uh, week after two games are played, you get a recap that sort of oscillates between actual analysis and insanity. Uh, This most recent one was about a quote by Eric Cantona and also Shia LaBeouf on uh, seagulls and sardines. So I think if you like uh, your basketball a little less serious but are not a Tennessee fan, those could be the post for you. But I will have some other NCAA-related content here soon. All right. Go do that. Follow Will, Stats by Will, on Twitter. And uh, go ahead and bookmark uh, that page, statsbywill.com. Bookmark it. 
college football fans, Tennessee fans alike. Go do that today. Will, thank you as always for the time, good sir. And I will talk to you next week. Yes, thanks for having me on. All right, hello, and welcome back to the Chase Thomas Podcast, where I am now joined by one of my favorite pro football writers, talkers. It's Sam Monson of Pro Football Focus. Sam, how are you doing, sir? I'm doing well. How about you? Not too bad. Not too bad. Do you do you enjoy the regular season or the playoffs more? Um, I mean, I think the playoffs are obviously more exciting. You know, it's it's win or go home. It's it's the best teams. It's kind of everything. Like the regular season. I think it's longer and you get more interesting storylines sometimes and you get to see these guys that develop out of nowhere and have these seasons that are really impressive that just nobody saw coming like Cordero Patterson this year or Devondre Campbell for the Green Bay Packers at linebacker. By the time you get to the playoffs, you kind of know who are the good guys, who's going to play well this year, where everything's going to be. And it's just a case of figuring out which of these teams is is going to put together that run in the postseason and ultimately take home the, the prize everybody's shooting for how much game film would you say you watch on an average week during the regular season yeah it's hard to quantify it obviously we're watching all the games um and, and covering them all as part of what me and steve do on the podcast at pff so we're, we're watching as much actual live football as humanly possible and then one of the things PFF has uh, is the all the data tied into the film and, and the the ability to access it in sort of ready made cut ups hmm. just through our our product called PFF Ultimate that the the NFL teams all subscribe to. So that tends to be the rest of my like tape watching is you know if I want to see how. Jordan Mylata is performing. You can pull up all of his pass blocking snaps over a given period and just watch those sequentially rather than going through a game and sort of doing it manually bit by bit. Or, you know, you want to see how a particular pass rusher is winning. You pull up all their pressures and you just watch those um, one after the other. So it, it tends to be sort of more efficient that way. It's, it's tough to quantify just in pure tape uh, terms, but you know, anything we're writing about or anything we're discussing, you try and uh, get through a lot of the tape and a lot of the actual film and, and f- make sure you, you're conveying the right message, right? Absolutely. That's that's really cool. Um, something that I think caught a lot of NFL Twitter by surprise, but I'm curious if this caught you by surprise, was that uh, David Coley getting fired uh, by the Houston Texans. Did that come as a surprise to you at all? Sort of. Um, I think if you look at it in terms of like David Culley, if anything, overachieved this year, you certainly couldn't say that he underachieved relative to expectations. So from that perspective, firing him one year into his job feels pretty harsh. But I think it just really illustrates what it felt like a weird hire last year. Right. Nobody was sort of looking at that and going, oh, David Culley's this great under the radar kind of signing. He's the guy that's going to take this team where it needs to go. And it was like, you know, a group of people were like, who the hell is David Culley? A group of other people were sort of saying, okay, I mean, we know who he is and he's done a decent job where he is, but like, this is not a guy that was on most people's head coaching radars. It seemed like either an afterthought hire, you know, the, the candidates had gone, they just picked somebody um, and maybe come back and do it properly the next year or a designed stopgap. Like we're not ready for 
the vision of whatever head coach we're going to bring in yet. We're just, we just need a guy in, in the job. Right. And I've heard people suggest that he was there specifically to deflect attention away from the Deshaun Watson mess. I think that's probably galaxy braining it a little bit too much, but I think ultimately he was there because they weren't ready to hire the real head coach yet. They were not in far long enough in the process that they wanted the next sort of true visionary in the building they just wanted somebody there for the next 12 months to complete a football season does this clear the way for josh mcdaniels to finally take another head coaching job mcdaniels could be one or obviously brian flores now that he's yeah. been fired from miami is the other guy that, that is being brought up a lot there's connections obviously between him and, and nick casario we don't know sort of how strong those are and, and where that he lies it adds a new wrinkle to the whole Deshaun Watson and Miami right. Dolphins trade rumors and mess that's been circulating. And um, I, yeah, it, it, you obviously are going to be looking at, pl- at people like that, given the Casario connection and where he might be going. But it's difficult to know what the right candidate for Houston is. I mean, they're such a disarray as a franchise right now. It's hard to know kind of what what the right candidate looks like. Would you roll with David Mills for a little bit longer or do you, do you not see enough? Yeah, I said on our podcast that given where they are, I think it's worth, you know, I think it's worth giving him next year. Um, I don't have a tremendous amount of confidence that next year he would show that he's the guy, but I don't think you're going to get a massively better option this year and you need to fix everything else anyway. So I don't necessarily have a problem with doing it the way the Detroit Lions did this year, which is say Jared Goff is going to like almost almost what they just did with David Culley as head coach, right? A stop, a stop gap guy in the job for the next 12 months while we try and build everything else up. And then then we can get our new quarterback or if he actually surprises everybody and he's way better than people think he's going to be. You know, it's a great problem to have. You just you got your answer without needing to invest in it. So. I would give him next season, deploy all your resources and building up every other part of the team and see what he can do. I, I wouldn't have tremendously high expectations, but if he proves you wrong, it's a great thing. Which franchise who fired their coach and or GM this offseason is in the most trouble for the foreseeable future? Um, I think, I mean, the Giants are not in a good spot. I think there's a lot of problems there. They don't have a, a ton of talent. It's it's a tough situation to be in. They have a, an unknown quarterback. Jacksonville, if Trevor Lawrence can still be the guy that people thought Trevor Lawrence was a year ago, isn't a bad job. But if he isn't that guy, they're in trouble as well. Um, Miami might not have a quarterback and they don't have an offensive line, so they're not in great shape. And then the sort of low-key one, even though they actually have a decent roster, is that Denver job you are going to have to face Patrick Mahomes twice a year, Justin Herbert twice a year, Derek Carr twice a year, and you don't have a quarterback. Like getting just an okay quarterback doesn't do you an, all, an awful lot of good if you're Denver because you're in this absolute cutthroat murderer's row of a division. Um, so kind of on the quiet, that's quite a tough job. Well, that's where the, the Aaron Rodgers aspect uh, comes into yeah. play with the Denver job. That's just, a like you said, a wild card situation. Um, and then you have this on the flip side, like the Vikings job. It's like, well, uh, I mean, they still have a lot of talent, especially on offense. And uh, Spielman and uh, Zimmer getting let go, like Arif Hassan was on uh, today. And we were talking about uh, the Vikings job and the pros and cons. But like Zimmer is like a perfect parachute coach for a lot of these franchises. And I don't know if you agree with that, but just like if you're the Giants 
or the Jaguars and you've been just engulfed in just awfulness for years and years, like there's not a better coach to hire than Mike Zimmer, who, you know, you're like, he doesn't win less than seven games. Like the guy is going to bring you up and get you in somehow. Um, Like if you're one of those two teams, would you not give him serious consideration? Yeah, I think it depends where you want to go. Mm. I don't know how much, I don't know how much just getting to average motivates a team when they're trying to, you know, set a new direction and hire. I think when you press that button and it's like, okay, we're firing everybody in the building, we're resetting, we're trying to do something different. It feels like everybody wants to use that as the, that's where you shoot for the stars and try and, you know, try and bring in something that's going to take you not just ahead of where you are, like the basement somewhere, but actually really give put you on the pathway to a Super Bowl. I don't know that many teams look at the intermediate step and say, well, what if we just try and get the average first and then try and go from average to the Super Bowl? Um, I think they try and bring in the guy that's going to take them the whole way. And sometimes I think that's where they get into trouble because they look for something visionary or they look for you know something that's that's a little bit beyond the unproven and they try and they try and shoot for the stars um i mean that's why you end up with a, a guy like urban meyer as opposed to bringing in a kind of a retread that would just take you there so yeah I, if you're jacksonville and all you want to do is to stop being embarrassing then mike zimmer is a great guy to bring in if you're jacksonville and you're fed up of being the team you are and you want to win a super bowl sometime in the next few years then i don't think zimmer's your guy it's a it's a tough situation to be in either way. Um, it seems like the Bills for me and for a lot of other folks uh, that like they're just the hardest team to figure out this year. Um, would you agree with that sentiment that, that just the offense and the defense and just Josh Allen's up and down play? And I mean, he was he was horrendous in the Falcons game. And that was a lot of fun up until the end. Uh, and we don't have to uh, get into what what happened, the monstrosity that uh, knocked the Atlanta Falcons out of the out of the playoff picture. But um do you do you see that they were just kind of like a really hard team week to week to just get a grasp on because the expectations were so high but they also just they weren't bad i I don't know like were they hard for you to read week to week i think they're very good i mean obviously they have they have one of the most weird results in the nfl this season on their record like jacksonville beat Mm -hmm. buffalo bills and that's one of the most unexplainable made no sense whatsoever results in this entire season of a bunch of weird results like that. So from that perspective, like, yeah, Buffalo is a weird team to work out because in no conceivable world should they have ever lost to Jacksonville. Um, But generally this year, I think they've been good at beating up on bad teams. Like Mm -hmm. they show when they play a bad team or a team that isn't just of a high enough level that they're a much better side than that. And they generally run up the score against those sides and cover big point spreads. And it might not always be pretty and it might sometimes be a grind, but they tend to get there in the end. But then they play teams, I think, that can bring more physicality to the table and are a good team overall. And against those teams, they've struggled a bit more, whether it's the first Patriots game in the freaky weather. Um, those are the teams, you know, Indianapolis, that give them more trouble. I think that's the sort of the tale of the bills this year is that if they face bad teams, they're going to roll and they're going to beat them, particularly if they share one or face ones that are a similar style. But if they face these tougher, more physically built teams, um, that's where they run into issues and they just aren't able to establish the same level of uh, talent superiority. 
Should more folks uh, prepare themselves for the Titans to win the AFC? Um, I think it's a live reality, but I think that's true for any of these teams. Like the AFC this year, all the way through the season, we've just been we've been talking about you know there are no good teams in the AFC, and when is the class of this conference going to emerge? And all those kinds of things. And it never happened. And Tennessee kind of ended up with the number one seed just almost by default. Um, but I think the, the flip side of that is any of these teams could go on a run and beat any other team in the playoffs. So the Titans could absolutely end up rolling from the number one seed, getting to the Super Bowl and, you know, being the AFC representative. Equally, they could lose the first game they play. Uh, and I don't think either one of them would be a particularly big shock. So I don't think it's inevitable, but there there's as live as anybody else yeah i just the nfl likes to i guess a lot of people like to see it as more of a parody sport than it actually is and i mean number one seeds we're going to see how much uh, how big of a dividend that pays uh for these two teams because i mean that first round by just being the only team to do that that like titans have a good a good shot at uh getting through a very uh mercurial afc um Will there ever be a consensus for you on Burrow versus Herbert? Um, not if they both keep playing at this level. Mm-hmm. I mean, what was interesting is uh, Doug Hyde wrote an article on PFF.com that came out on, on today, Thursday, um, where he polled a bunch of NFL people, players, coaches, executives, about which guy would you want, Herbert or Burrow. And every single executive said Joe Burrow, which hmm. I was shocked by. The, the players are the... The coaches and, and everybody else was a lot more evenly split, though I think it was still favoring Burrow. But every single exec said they would take Burrow over Herbert. And that was after the Sunday night game where Joe Burrow or where Justin Herbert was incredible, like six for six on fourth down for like a hundred yards, just single handedly almost refusing to lose that game for the Chargers against the Raiders. It happened after that. So if anything, I would have thought that would be even more in Herbert's favor and given the style of player he is or the advantages that he has in terms of arm strength and just freakish ability to put the ball where it needs to go I'm I'm genuinely shocked that that wasn't a landslide in the opposite direction not not everybody going for Burrow but I think they're both incredible right now Um, and if they both keep up that kind of pace it's going to be another Aaron Rodgers versus Drew Brees or Peyton Manning versus Tom Brady it's going to be two guys that are both incredible at any given year, either one of them could be the better guy. And over the long haul, it's pretty much a coin flip. And that brings us to Tua Tagovailoa, who is uh, sandwiched in between uh, the two of these guys and not in that conversation. Uh, GMs are not fighting over who they'd rather have. But from your perspective, you mentioned at the top that uh, the offensive line, the miss on Austin Jackson to this point, um, just relying a lot on Jalen Waddle and motion and uh, relying on, I guess that was Duke Johnson on the stretch here. Just a really rough situation for, for Tua, even though they kept winning games down the stretch of that horrible start. But for you, was it more Tua as the problem in Miami this year? Or do you think it was mostly what was around Tua, which complicates how we, how we view him going forward? No, I think they had the worst offensive line in the NFL this year. And Mm -hmm. one of the worst offensive lines that the NFL has seen in the last 15 years. Um, It's, it was a catastrophic group and it, it was terrible despite that offense actually doing a pretty good job of protecting it in terms of pretty quick passing Mm -hmm. to a, you know, low average at the target. Um, A lot of RPOs, which are 
run blocks, right? The, the offensive line is run blocking on an RPO and you're, you're essentially passing it off the back of it. So there are plays where they can't give up pressure. They're not going to get charged for pressure that, that gets given up. So it hmm. stops. They're not, they're not pass blocking in a true sense. Um, so it protects them in those terms. And yet they're still giving up a ton of pressure and getting beat left, right, and center. So their offensive line was so bad that I think it massively complicates any kind of evaluation of Tua, who for most of the year played pretty well. Um, down the stretch, it, it got ugly for a couple of games, but by and large, he was not bad. And we know that that offensive line should have been almost completely non-viable for a quarterback. So it makes it a very difficult evaluation. The other thing about Tua is that, you know, one of the things people talk about for a quarterback is can he elevate the play of people around him? Um, and usually they talk about that in terms of taking a good group to be somewhere great. Tua elevated the play of people around him. And the, the way you know that is because Jacoby Brissett played, you know, multiple times this season. And when he did, the line looked worse. And when hmm. he did, Jalen Waddle looked worse. Like, Tua made a notable difference to his receivers and to his offensive line over a guy like Jacoby Brissett. And look, Jacoby Brissett's not a superstar, but he's also, we know that he's a, a good backup quarterback, like a, a guy that's borderline, you know, started games in the NFL and not done badly. Um, he's not a catastrophe of a quarterback, and yet Tua did make an, an obvious difference anytime he was on the field. So it's just a very difficult evaluation now because you know the offensive line makes him worse, but you don't know how much and if it's enough to kind of bridge the gap between where he is right now and where you need him to be. Who is a player that you love watching that most folks don't bat an eye to? Um, I think there's I, – I, th I love watching you know defensive line and offensive line. I think a lot of the times the best battles in the game – are in the trenches and particularly inside like some of the ways that these guys win and, and impact plays they're the things that determine the results of games but you don't tend to notice it you tend to follow the football you look at the yards you look at the the splash plays and you're not sort of focusing on the down to down quality of, of how guys are playing so Cameron Hayward is a guy that is playing the best football of his career, deep into his career. I think every season since he's turned 30, he's had a PFF grade above 90, hmm. um, which have all been, I think, the best years of his career, like three straight seasons in and around 90, just absolutely dominating and doing it in the run game and as a pass rusher. And you, you only really notice him when he makes those splash plays, but he's doing it as consistently as anybody outside of Aaron Donald. Um, and really tends to get very overlooked. I like that. Uh, maybe some John Abraham stuff going on there. Um, the most creative coach this year was who for you? Um, I think Dan Quinn deserves a lot of credit for what he did with Micah Parsons. Once hmm. they sort of, they got lucky with Parsons in terms of, I don't think they intended to draft him in the first place. They wanted a cornerback. And when the cornerbacks were gone, they kind of did that trade down panic thing and end up selecting Parsons. They draft him as a linebacker, like an off the ball linebacker. And then when they ran into um, issues with injuries and they lost all of their pass rushers, Randy Gregory and, um, and uh, D Demarcus Lawrence, all of a sudden they just asked, Hey, Micah Parsons, you're going to play 
you're going to play edge rusher first. We, we just need a body. We need somebody to try and get some pressure. You're going to give it a go. And it turns out he was incredible at that. And rather than just move him there full time or, you know, split only when they needed a guy, when they ran out of players and they, they injuries forced him to it, um, they decided to basically use him as a hybrid player and say, sometimes you're going to rush the passer, sometimes you're going to be playing off the ball and drop into coverage. And they used him as a matchup weapon on defense and shifted him around. And they didn't have to do that. And I think a lot of coaches would not have done that. They would have just stuck with him in one position or they never would have given him the shot in the first place. So I think Dan Quinn deserves a lot of credit for being willing to kind of open up the possibilities of what Micah Parsons lets you do. Your Super Bowl pick is who? Man, the Super Bowl is still chaos right now. I think mm-hmm. we just talked about the AFC. It's wide open. I think you probably still say that the Chiefs have the best chance of making it from the AFC. Um, Three straight years, though. Yeah, it, it would be. And it would it would be an incredible achievement, particularly as they're, I don't think they're as good this year as they've mm-hmm. been in the past. But I think you still look at it now and say they're probably the best team in that conference. Um, the NFC, it's probably Green Bay's to lose. But equally, you could see a bunch of teams from the NFC going on a run and making that happen. It wouldn't shock me if Tom Brady got Tampa Bay there again. It wouldn't shock me if Dallas put it all together for a stretch and went on that run. It also wouldn't shock me if San Francisco went on an improbable run and knocked off a bunch of teams and made there. But I think if I was putting my money somewhere, it would be on a Kansas City Green Bay Super Bowl. I noticed you didn't mention Arizona or St. Louis or St. Louis or uh, L.A. there. Yeah, I, I don't trust Matthew Stafford to get it done. I, I think mm-hmm. we've seen too much of Detroit Matthew Stafford this year. And while the production and the numbers are better because everything around him is better, he's still the same guy. Like He's still going to pitch it to the defense um, a, a few times in the playoffs. And if those are the wrong times, the Rams are going to be sitting at home at the end of it. Um, and Arizona, they've been, they impressed me for so much of this season. And then the wheels kind of fell off late in the year. And I just kind of, I lost faith in what they can do. The fact that they won't have DeAndre Hopkins back until maybe the NFC championship game, if they get that far is a really important thing for them. And I just, outside of that Dallas game, I've been kind of robbed of any faith I had in the Cardinals. Hmm. That's fair. Uh, last thing, and we'll wrap up here today, Sam. Um, something that you have learned about Steve that most folks would be surprised by. <laughs> something I've learned about Steve. Um, Steve, I learned, it's probably not surprising, but I did learn that Steve has an absolute freakish ability to put down food. <laughs> um, we, you know what, uh, you know, those Brazilian steakhouses, yeah. go to chow, that kind of thing. We went to one of those and it's, it's the kind of thing where you, you put the green dot upwards and it means, you know, just keep, keep bringing meat, keep loading it up with meat. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then you turn it over to the red dot and that means, no, leave me alone. I'm, I'm done. Um, so like I, I can eat a lot of meat in a given time, but mm-hmm. the capacity that Steve had to eat meat was mind bending. What are we talking about here? What, like how much is he clearing? 10. I, I can't even quantify it. There <laughs> was a lot of meat going there. And like he, I was tapped out and he was still going for quite some period of time. Like it was just a impressive volume of meat. It's difficult to quantify because it comes in like, you know, little bits and pieces as the guy, the guys sort of wander around with the, like the skewers or the platters or whatever it is, whether it's filet, whether it's lamb chops, whether mm-hmm. it's the, 
the kind of weird um, that weird cut that's that a Brazilian steakhouse thing, uh, picanha or whatever they call it, picanta, something like that. Um, so it's difficult to kind of know exactly what you ate by the end of it. Mm-hmm. But like I was tapped out for a while and he was still hammering down lamb chops and fillets. <laughs> that's amazing. Um, have you ever seen Mike uh, with a cheat meal? What Have you ever seen him with something that you folks would be like, oh, he's he's not perfect. He doesn't eat clean all the time. Um, it's not so much that he doesn't eat clean. It's that his methodology of eating clean is, is pretty hideous looking. He used to eat these things where I think he would mix peanut butter powder in like yogurt or something to create Mm. like this awful looking concoction (laughs) that just seemed, seemed hideous. That's probably pretty good. I'm a pretty big peanut butter guy. Uh, Sam, how do the good folks keep up with you, your your show that I love listening to multiple times a week? You got the PFF Daily, you got uh, the PFF NFL show with Steve Falzolo, but uh, all kinds of great work all around PFF.com. How do the folks keep up with everybody and everything going on as we head into the NFL playoffs this weekend? Yeah, all those podcasts are on YouTube and the the Pro Football Focus YouTube channel. They're also wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's Apple, um, whether it's Stitcher, anywhere like that. You just Google the PFF NFL podcast or the PFF NFL Daily. You'll find us, obviously, pff.com for all the written stuff. And then Twitter, um, at PFF underscore Sam is my Twitter handle. There you go. Thank you so much for making the time. This was a lot of fun. I greatly appreciate it. And good luck this postseason. Anytime. Thanks for having me. All right, we're back here on the Chase Thomas Podcast, where I am now joined by one of my favorite NFL writers, Vikings writers. Uh, it's someone that does not uh, dive into my DMs to remind me that Georgia Sports turned around right after I left. Uh, I'm not looking at you, Eric Thompson of The Daily Norseman. No, it's Arif Hassan of TheAthletic.com. Arif, good afternoon, sir. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? Not too bad. Not too bad. Um, so does it all feel real right now that... Uh, everybody's gone that Minnesota actually cleaned house uh, this offseason. It is kind of uh, difficult to absorb. Uh, you know, I've been so used to having, you know, Mike Zimmer there and especially Rick Spielman. He's been there since I've been covering the team. Uh, and so I- I'm trying to like remember how to get used to a coaching search and try to figure out what a general manager search looks like and try to figure out like, hey, what do you ask? in that introductory press conference anyway, like it seems like all the questions are going to be weird. So like, yeah, there's nothing, um, there's nothing kind of normal about any of this. And so I am still trying to come to terms with it. Yeah. What do you think is going to be weirder or felt maybe not even just weirder, but what do you think is going to be felt, uh, by the team more in the short term, uh, Zimmer's departure or Spielman's, uh, in the short term, I think Zimmer's departure, I think one of the, things that Viking fans will have to grasp with is that the reason they fired Zimmer is not because Zimmer's a bad coach, it's because he wasn't a great coach, and they thought that that roster was good enough to to make a Super Bowl run, and they just haven't made the playoffs too often recently. Um, but the problem is, it's hard to find a coach who consistently goes above 550 like Zimmer did, so... Um, I, I think that the the adjustment for the team is is you know you probably in all likelihood won't end up with a good coach and that's the risk the Vikings made in order to to take the risk that they would also um, find a great coach you you have to you know absorb the likelihood that there's going to be um, a greater chance that you don't find that coach at all so 
Um, that's going to be the, the bigger adjustment is that it's not the defense we're going to be used to seeing and we're probably, you know, maybe I could be wrong, but we're probably not going to be seeing wins come right away. So I think that that's the issue. I think from a general manager perspective, yeah, sure, the way that they draft players will change philosophically, but, you know, the the reverberations of that won't be felt for a couple of years. It's interesting you bring that up because that's something I've posited to other NFL fans or just on this very podcast when I've talked to other uh, Vikings writers, which is that like, if I was a Vikings fan, or I mean, this was something that Falcons fans have to think about with Smith and Quinn and Mike Smith before him and stuff like that, where it's like, it, it could be so much worse. It really could. And uh, certain, I mean, the Lions just went through it going from Caldwell to Patricia. Um, the Dolphins might go through it uh, replacing Flores with whoever they hire, but it could always be worse. And like you said, it actually is kind of hard to even find coaches that or is consistently fine as Mike Zimmer was, especially on the defensive side of the ball that like, I don't know the, the odds of replacing him and getting those wins and the, the next coach that follows Zimmer um, being better, uh, I think are less likely than maybe some Vikings fans would like to believe. Right. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, if you take a look at, you know, when Zimmer was hired, you take a look at all the other coaches in, I guess you could call that a coaching class, I suppose, uh, but hired in that cycle, um, Zimmer was the longest lasting. I mean, coaches don't tend to last long. I think um, you, you tend to go through about a third of the league's coaches every year, um, which uh, which would make this actually a, a highly resistant cycle to coach firings, if anything else. Um, and I don't know what the average career for a coach is. I'm tempted to say, you know, like three years or something like that, but that actually does seem low. Um, but it is pretty short. Mike Zimmer far outlasted most coaches. And so if you just take a look at every coaching hire, take a look at, you know, how they did, how long they lasted, you know, Zimmer far outlasted those people. So we know that Zimmer was an above average coach, both in terms of his winning percentage on the field, but also just in terms of, you know, how long he lasted, because we're very often comparing winning percentages of coaches among coaches who coach like at least 50 games or something like that. And a lot of coaches don't even get there. Uh, I, I don't know if even Joe Judge got there, right? And we know that Brian Flores, you know, barely got there, um, if at all. I think he might have gotten to 48, right? And so uh, the number of, of coaches that are better than Zimmer is very small, and there's a lot of coaching cycles where you don't find one coach. I mean, Zimmer was barely hired when the Vikings got him. I mean, I think they, they knew that they were taking a chance uh, going for a guy that had been overlooked in every single, uh, you know, coaching cycle that he had been a part of. And so... Um, the the likelihood that you're going to find a better coach than Zimmer, I think it's even lower than fans are willing to acknowledge. And I think a lot of fans are willing to acknowledge that this is a risk that the Vikings took, maybe one that they needed to take, but one that they took, um, knowing that they're more likely to get worse. I think that the odds of them getting worse are, are a lot higher than people are willing to admit. Yeah, and I think that would be scary if you're a Vikings fan. Uh, before we get into like what uh, the immediate future looks like, though, something I wonder, do you do you get the sense that a lot of this could have been avoided if, if this was not a Green Bay Packers problem that it, it's not a coincidence that both the Chicago Bears and the Minnesota Vikings cleaned house in the same offseason that uh, the Packers are just they just kept off another uh, great run where they're just favored to get out of the NFC and Aaron Rodgers is stuck around in year 17 and just having Aaron Rodgers and a competent organization like the Packers in the division just kind of changes things uh, just a tad and adds a little bit more pressure uh, for ownership. 
Yeah, I think so. I'd actually would love to look into that, um, you know, statistically and see if coaches in weak divisions, um, you know, with the same record or a similar record as Zimmer might last longer mm-hmm. than, than coaches in strong divisions. That's interesting. Um, but I, I think that that definitely plays a role because if you take, and obviously you can't pick which game you win, but if you take, you know, that second Green Bay game away, let's say Aaron Rodgers gets traded to Denver, so they play Denver, you know, week one, I think, right? Um, or no, they, they played them in the preseason. You don't have to worry about that. Um, so, but yeah, if you take one of those Packers games away and you replace it with like Jordan Love or something like that, um, you know, the Vikings probably make the playoffs, right? And so, uh, if they make the playoffs, it's hard to fire Zimmer. I know that there have been a couple of coaches that have made the playoffs and have gotten fired. Uh, sometimes it's the right decision, like the Titans with Mike Malarkey. Sometimes it's the wrong decision, like the Chargers with Schottenheimer. Um, but I think for the most part, you're unlikely. To, to fire a coach who makes the playoffs and maybe even wins a game in the playoffs. I mean, this is not the world's strongest, um, you know, playoff field, I think, this year. So, um, yeah, I think the Packers being in the division certainly impacted, you know, Zimmer's outlook. Um, and I think that if you take a look at, at, you know, divisions generally, you don't see, you know, two coaches in the same cycle going um, very often. Um, I think that the Nagy would have been fired with or without Rodgers just because the Bears were underperforming so consistently. Um, but I think that the difference that Rodgers makes is the reason that Zimmer's not in the division anymore. So I, I certainly think that plays a role. Um, what's interesting, though, is that if you look at it, I think, from the perspective of, of like, the 10,000-foot view of, you know, hey, the Vikings don't make the playoffs two years in a row, you get rid of the coach, that makes sense. But if you take a look at it from the perspective of how the Vikings do against the Packers, you know, I think, I think that's the best part of Zimmer's resume, honestly. And so it's kind of funny that the reason the Vikings aren't, you know, sticking with Zimmer in part has to do with the Packers closing them out of the playoffs. But also, you know, the reason that Zimmer's such a tantalizing candidate is because of what he was able to do specifically against the Packers. Yeah, and I I'm curious to see if he gets another crack at it. I'm I'm. Would you recommend it? Like, if you're a team, I guess it just depends on a case by case basis. But um, like the Giants make a lot of sense to me with just how bad things have gotten, especially just the end of the Joe Judge era. But um, just fi- getting Zimmer where you like know the baseline cannot be bad. Like the baseline is competency, and uh, maybe there are a lot of parallels between him and Coughlin anyway. But I don't know. I actually really like that. I mean, they have to hire a GM as well, but that is something I was thinking about is like who, who have just gotten fired is most likely to get another job and should get another, another crack at it. Do you think Zimmer qualifies as that group who deserves another head coaching opportunity? I think he does. Um, his name hasn't popped up that much um, as a, as a candidate, which is, I, I think a little bit interesting because, you know, Andy Reid, when he got fired, got snapped up right away, even though mm-hmm. he didn't want a Super Bowl yet. Um, although I guess to his credit, he had participated in one. Um, but I, I think that, you know, these guys that are really good on one side of the ball and are just good enough um, as a head coach to not be like a defensive coordinator candidate, kind of like, you know, Wade Phillips, for example, had mm-hmm. a couple of stints as a head coach and then is just kind of eternally this defensive coordinator. Um, it is interesting that it's Brian Flores' name that's popping up among recent fires that could end up becoming a head coach. Um, I wouldn't be shocked if if um, Zimmer essentially uh, took the year off if he can, if he knows how to hmm. do that, if he um, uh, if he doesn't kind of appear anywhere or has like a Gary Kubiak year where he's just kind of a consultant to a team um, before he enters kind of a head coaching cycle again. Now, of course, he's um, a little bit older as a coach, but there are older coaches in the league. I mean, Pete Carroll and Bill Belichick are two examples. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it might make a team hesitant to to want to hire him just because of his age. 
But I, I do think that you take a look at his record, you take a look at a team like the Jaguars or the Giants, and you say, hey, I would kill to never go below seven wins. Right. Right? Like, Zimmer's never gotten below seven wins. And so, like, you, if you're one of those organizations, you, I that's very tempting to me. Like, you say, hey, you know, maybe he doesn't make the playoffs consistently. Maybe he doesn't win in the playoffs consistently. I would love to be in that conversation in the first place. So let's get right. there and then decide. Yeah, I think that's a that's a good point. I think that's something that a lot of teams are going to consider. Uh, I got some breaking news for you on the podcast. We're talking about head coaches. Are you ready for this? Uh, no, but tell me. David Coley just got fired by the Texans. Oh, wow. You're kidding. No. Okay, well, I I don't love that move for a couple of reasons, <laughs> but but uh, I think we all kind of saw it coming. Yeah. Um, the, the, there was reporting, um, I think, uh, on the on the Saturday before Black Monday, mm-hmm. that that he'd be out, and it, it took a while. So I, I think we figured that he was safe. But I think that the general consensus, at least you know, in my Twitter sphere, which is a very small um, bubble, was that yeah, he did a lot better <laughs> than you would have expected, given the tools that he had. I think making um, a third round rookie quarterback look competent by the end of the year, getting four wins when your starting quarterback uh, is not available. Um, trading away kind of their best skill position players on offense. You know, I think Cully did a really good job with what he had had. Um, but we also knew that he was a placeholder. Um, this to me signals that um, the Texans feel confident that they can get Josh McDaniels. I think that that's what that means. Well, hold on. They just said that uh, they're not the, the New England South. Kyle McNair just came out in the press conference just a couple days ago and said that uh, they're not New England South. So that would go against that public uh that public statement well you can always trust what the Texans have to say <laughs> that's true that's true <laughs> uh <laughs> um what is an under talked about reason as to why the vikings ultimately struggled and did not make the playoffs in 2021 yeah an under discussed reason that one's mm-hmm. interesting because a lot of people talk about cousins and his contract and i think that that's a fair discussion a lot of people talk about Spielman and his ability to draft, especially offensive linemen. That's a that's a common discussion. Um, I just wrote a piece that um, that went live yesterday on Mike Zimmer and the defense, and I think that 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 could be part of it. I don't know if it's under discussed, but I think that one element of uh, Mike Zimmer leaving essentially is that the the defense wasn't living up to to what Mike Zimmer the coach kind of represents, right? Because the first four years um, of, of the, of the Zimmer era uh, involved just constant improvements on defense until they were the number one defense in the league. And then they were able to maintain that for a couple of years until about 2019 so when they were like the seventh best defense or something like that, maybe sixth, uh, depending on how you look at it. And the goal with getting cousins was to pair the potential of a top 10 offense with a top 10 defense. I mean, that sounds like automatic playoff fodder. And they only were able to get anything close to resembling that in 2019 when I believe they were, by EPA, the 11th best offense and the 7th best defense, like I said. And so that's the closest. And, of course, they made the playoffs that year. Um, But otherwise, they they didn't make the playoffs in the Cousins era. Uh, And uh, part of that is, you know, not anybody's fault that, you know, was on the current roster. Like, I, I think it's fair to say John DeFilippo was a very poor offensive coordinator that couldn't get the most out of that 2018 offense when that defense was so good. Um, but part of it is just, you know, the way the Vikings kind of approached roster building, the way that Zimmer kind of approached his 
confidence in building a defense that made some personnel mistakes. Um, so I think that that's kind of one thing is that the whole, I shouldn't say the point, but kind of the, the selling um, point of, of Mike Zimmer was how good he was at, at coordinating defenses and how good he was in making sure that it, the reason the team is going to get to a baseline is because of how well he organizes this defense. In these last two years, we just didn't see that. They were like the 27th best defense, or I guess was a sixth worst defense in the NFL last year and then this year. Um, you know, they, they bounced back in a big way. I think they got to 12th in EPA, mm-hmm. but we know that that's not really what that defense was. I mean, it's very inconsistent within games from play to play. Uh, and so they lost any leads that they were able to gain. Um, so I think that that's one element is that it's, it's that the defense, for whatever reason, whether it's play calling, which I don't think is, is really it, or arrogance from Zimmer or um, the cap pressure from Cousins or Spielman's decision making, whatever, the defense fell out. And I think we talk a lot about Cousins, and that's totally fair. Um, but the defense falling out, I think, is one big reason that, that Zimmer isn't here anymore, even though that's his calling card interesting um and it's also like he was fighting against just the volatility of uh defensive performance year year right like that's the uh that's the reason there there's that's the reason there's a propensity to hiring offensive guys is that offenses if you're a good offensive coach you're going to be a good offensive coach year over year but good defenses are really really difficult to um just keep up and keep moving in the top 10 in defensive dvoa year over year and zimmer at least early on um before things kind of like you outlined spiraled the last two years was able to buck that trend which uh was pretty remarkable i think yeah i think that that's kind of it's one of the things that's that's really difficult to get across to people who don't um, kind of intuit this this defensive problem about defensive stability, but it is I think one of the most impressive things that that stands out about Mike Zimmer's career is how consistently good that defense was. Because when you think about some of the great defenses um, that uh, you know occurred alongside the Zimmer era, I don't think any of them lasted as long as Mike Zimmer's did. Certainly not the the Jacksonville Jaguars defense that took them to the AFC Championship game. Um, but the Legion of Boom didn't last as long. The um, the Denver Broncos defense, like that 2015 unit that was so excellent, didn't last as long. It's basically the Vikings and the Baltimore Ravens. And if you're kind of willing to extend your definition of what counts as a good defense, um, maybe the Patriots and the Rams. Um, but, but Zimmer's consistency there, uh, I think, really stands out alone, especially when you take a look at kind of the – the submetrics of a defense that are typically extremely volatile, more volatile than defensive ranking overall, things like third down conversion rate. I mean, that's one of the most volatile things on an offense or a defense every single year that has an outsized impact on the game. And and Zimmer was able to maintain, I think, the number one third down conversion defense in the NFL for uh, three or four years in a row and had a top five one, um, I think, since 2015. I mean, it's it's nuts. I mean, even, even this year, he had a top four third down conversion defense. Um, it's nuts how good he was at preventing third downs. And I think if you take over the look um, between 2015 and 2019, which I think was the five-year stretch where his defense was the strongest, um, he had the, I think, the number one red zone defense and the number one third down defense by a really significant margin. Um, so what he was able to do um, in in that respect is probably unrepeatable in the modern NFL. And part of that has to do with the fact that there wasn't a bunch of player turnover between 2015 and 2019. Um, but part of it is that, that Zimmer himself was able to resist that kind of, of volatility. And so in that way, he, he stands out as 
a really unique figure, I think, in the modern NFL, because that that is just not really all that doable. Yeah, um, that's uh, that's a good reason as to why you might want to do it if you're the Giants or the Jaguar or something like that. Um, in terms of Spielman, though, he was always someone who was just regarded as competent and good. And the just he was never someone like, oh, we got to get Spielman out of here. There's no Gettleman jokes. There was no uh i mean insert uh lame duck gm here he wasn't ever in that in that zone he was never someone regarded that way until uh as of recently um do you think he did though like certain things that you monitored over the years that maybe more national fans or buffalo bills fans missed with spielman who thought that he was good at his job still like what did uh what did the what did folks miss that ultimately led to him not being the general manager in 2022 yeah, well, one one big issue with evaluating him is how closely tied he and Zimmer are together in terms hmm. of a lot of the decisions they make. Because I don't think, for example, Spielman drafts Mike Hughes in the first round if if you know Zimmer isn't the head coach, right? And I don't think that he goes out and signs Dalvin Tomlinson in free agency if Zimmer is not the head coach. So it is difficult to kind of separate some of the most impactful decisions that he makes as a general manager from the influence that the head coach has, which doesn't mean that, you know, Mike Zimmer was kind of running things. It wasn't like a Pete Carroll, John Schneider um, situation, but um, it, it is difficult to try and figure out, Hey, we're taking a look at these results. How much of that has to do with Zimmer? How much of that has to do with Spielman? You know, Zimmer told Spielman, for example, heading into this off season, it, the 2021 off season, that, they need to stop grabbing, you know, these these really athletic but uh, undersized offensive linemen. So what do the Vikings do? They draft Wyatt Davis. Well, Wyatt Davis was a wasn't even a third stringer for the Vikings this year. He was active for one or two games, maybe, uh, and that was as a result of of COVID protocols. I mean, a practice squad player ended up starting over Wyatt Davis. So. Um, as a third-round pick, Davis wasn't able to offer or contribute the kind of depth the Vikings needed along the offensive line. And you can say, hey, you know, Spielman, if he's going to get a bigger offensive lineman, you should get a good one instead. But if you limit the range of options available to a general manager, you're partially responsible for those results. And so um, that's the difficult thing. But if we kind of take a step back from that complicated scenario of, of what Zimmer's responsible and for what he's not responsible for, um, the biggest issue might be that Spielman was kind of riding high on how successful that 2015 draft was, which, um, you know, had uh, Eric Hendricks and Daniil Hunter and had just this remarkable um, set of hits. I think that's also the Trey Wayne's draft, which ended up bearing out uh, eventually. Um, but a remarkable set of picks, I think, all the way deep down uh, into the fifth and sixth rounds of players that were, I think that might have been the Tyler Conklin draft, too, if I remember, um, that all all these players that were able to to contribute in a huge way. It's almost as good as the, the 2017 Saints draft, for example, that had Kamara and Lattimore in it. Um, it that draft, I think, helped define... Uh, much of what we know is the Zimmer era because of how good those players were, and he manipulated the board really well. I, for example, would have drafted Kendricks in the first round, uh, and for him to be able to grab him in the second round and know that that was going to be an option available to him, I think is a remarkable reading of the board uh, and a huge credit to him. Um, and then you go into the 2016 draft. That was fairly disastrous. The 2017 draft revealed um, a couple of depth players, but it didn't get you any really great solid starters. And then the 2018 draft, I think, is where things really – really um, kind of 
bottomed out for him. And so it's the 2018, 2019, 2020 drafts where the Vikings weren't able to cycle in the kind of cheap talent they needed to address the depth that they would need for the 2020 and the 2021 seasons. Um, and so for the Vikings to to take the approach that they did in the 2021 offseason where they invested a lot in stars and then in the draft drafted primarily projects, you know, a quarterback that was going to sit for a while, a linebacker that played quarterback in college, a tight end that played punter in college, uh, um, you know, a defensive tackle that played defensive end in college. Um, you know, these guys that are not going to be ready year one, um, I, I found that kind of interesting given the depth problems that they had in 2021. But I think that the biggest thing that stands out is how confident they were in their draft approach. They would not draft a first or second round defensive lineman because they were so confident in their coaching um, that they would really only get third or, or generally fourth round guys because it hit with Neil Hunter. It hit with Everson Griffin. It hit all the way back with Brian Robinson and Ray Edwards. They were so confident in their ability to identify these mid to late round guys that they didn't realize like, hey, we drafted Scott Crichton in the third round. You know, we drafted Adi Arun in the sixth round. Our biggest hit is Afadi Adenabo in the sixth round. Um, they didn't realize that since Daniel Hunter, they weren't finding starting quality guys, and they kept doing it. And lo and behold, this year, they don't have anyone to replace Daniel Hunter or to put opposite him and up resigning Everson Griffin. So um, I think that there's a little bit of a confidence issue uh, in terms of being overconfident in the valuation from Spielman. But I think, you know, it's it's uh, it's really just kind of misjudging windows and figuring out where you are, not knowing that you need the depth that you needed this year. Um, panic trading for someone like Chris Herndon or panic trading for someone like Sam Bradford. It's it's really misjudging the state of the team when making moves. So those are kind of the things that really, I think, stand out about the Spielman era because he's normally he's pretty good at evaluation and he's great at manipulating the draft board. But you have to know where your team is in order for you to make it better. What do you think their target will be in the offseason? Do you think this is a complete teardown or do you think this is a retooling and we believe that we can compete for this division next year, especially if Aaron Rodgers is out of the division? Right. Um, I The sense that we got when we were talking to Mark Wolf, who's going to be, um, I guess, leading uh, is the best way to put it, leading the GM search, uh, leaning on um, the, uh, the internal staff of the front office um, a lot for that. I, I guess um, our interpretation of what he said is that they don't really expect this to be a rebuild. The problem, of course, is that he's got like a very big financial incentive not to tell fans to prepare for losing, right? Mm-hmm. So. Um, I don't know how much we can trust that um, because he said that they were going to make a decision on general manager and head coach independent of how those guys thought about some of the biggest questions surrounding the Vikings, like what to do with Kirk Cousins, whether to run it back, how to handle these draft picks and so on. So if you're going to hire a guy, regardless of what he feels about the roster, then you can't say in good faith that this team is ready to compete for a Super Bowl in 2022. You can't because you don't know how they're going to uh, approach this team. But I do think that one of the reasons that the Vikings are are supposedly, you know, and and I kind of trust these reports, but, you know, they are reports, supposedly one of the most attractive destinations is because they've got a lot of talent on the roster and they're theoretically ready to win now. So if you're going to attract coaches who are interested in that aspect of the Vikings, who want to work with players like Kendricks and Smith and Cousins, and, you know, you've got two pretty good tackles and Darisaw and O'Neal, and, and you've got Cook, and you've got a superstar receiving core. Um, if if that's who you're bringing in, then that's how they're going to treat it. So I think for the most part that the Wolves are right here, but 
I just want to acknowledge that, you know, they've got every reason in the world to tell fans to keep buying tickets, not to prepare for a lot of losses. But I do think that they will try to um, make the playoffs in 2022 as difficult as that sounds. Interesting. Uh, last thing, and we'll wrap up here. Who do you think they – do you have a name for either the GM search or the head coaching search that – let's do this, that you think they'll ultimately go, but what you would ultimately do if you were in charge? Um, you know, uh, I one of my things is that I – will have no clue, and I'm going to be very open about that, um, how good a general manager or a head coaching candidate is. Um, and so I've got people that I'm interested in. I like this Ed Dodds guy from the Colts. I'm kind of interested in uh, the people that they contacted from the Eagles organization because of how analytically forward they are. Um, I, I think uh, Raish and Brandon Brown are the two candidates from the Eagles. Uh, obviously, they talked to the Browns. Um, I think they talked to two of them, Glenn Cook, and or they want to. They haven't talked to anyone yet as of this recording, but they're interested in Glenn Cook and and um, geez, uh, I don't want to screw up this name, uh, Kwesi Adofo something. I'm so sorry about that. Um, it's going to be a name that I have to have in front of me for a while before I get it uh, down. Um, but you know they're both analytically inclined in terms of their approach because of the front office they come from. Um, it sounds like Will McClay from the Cowboys is pulling out of the GM search again. He's going to stay with the Cowboys. I'm sure they're um, compensating him more than adequately, but he would have been a very exciting candidate. Um, but yeah, if I, I guess if I were to pick Ed Dodds is, is maybe the most interesting to me, but again, no idea if that's good. And so um, I'd go with somebody who has a lot of experience on on all sides of the ball, who's got a history of strong drafting, has been in strong organizations, uh, and so on. So that is prop that probably leads me to Ed Dodds. And then I think from a coaching perspective, I know a lot of Vikings fans are kind of upset about the rumors about Doug Peterson. I think that that would be a pretty wonderful hire for a lot of reasons. I think that he's ultimately a good coach, and he got done in by a weird power struggle involving Carson Wentz, which so long as the Vikings don't go after him, don't see a problem. Um, but yeah, I think he's a really good coach, and uh, it's hard to get a Super Bowl-winning guy in the building as your head coach. So I, I would not mind Doug Peterson at all. Um, I would just need to, to figure out kind of what his philosophy on assistance are and stuff like that because that was also a problem in Philly. Um, but, you know, Brian Dable with the Bills is kind of exciting and interesting to me. Um, you know, a lot of these guys, uh, I, I really would just be intrigued by Kellen Moore, maybe. Um, I guess if I were to pick, I'd pick Brian Dable, but I think that there's more good candidates in this cycle from my perspective. And again, I don't know anything, but from my perspective, than in most coaching cycles that, that I'm just intrigued by. All right. Well, there you go. This has been great. Thank you so much for making the time, man. Uh, how did the good folks keep up with you on all social media and just everything else you got going on this week? Yeah. Um, so on social media, I think the only one I have is Twitter, uh, at Arifasan NFL. I think I technically have an Instagram account. It still does not have any photos posted to it. So um, if you happen to find it, congrats. <laughs> um, you, mostly you just find me on Twitter, at Arifasan NFL. Uh, otherwise, you can find me uh, on The Athletic, theathletic.com slash author slash Arif dash Hassan, or uh, on my podcast that I do with my co-host James. Um, that is called Norse Code. You can find that wherever podcasts are aggregated. All right. There you go. Keep up the great work, sir. Good luck on the GM head coaching search. Uh, I just went through it uh, this past year with Fontenot and Smith. We'll see. <laughs> it's a very much wait and see uh, <laughs> yeah. situation at this point in Atlanta. But 
um yeah it's exciting and at least interesting to uh change directions and see uh where your team is going for the next couple years so all the best to you sir and the good folks up there in minnesota you stay safe out there and uh we'll have to check back in again soon yeah it sounds good you have a good one all right that'll do it for today's edition of the chase thomas podcast thank you again to arif hassan uh sam monson and stats by will mr will warren for coming on today's edition of the podcast uh talking all things college basketball nfl and minnesota vikings so shout out to those guys for coming on the pod hope you enjoyed our conversations and make sure to give them a follow and keep up with their work if you have not already done so uh if you like today's episode of the chase thomas podcast make sure you uh leave us a five-star rating interview on apple Podcasts, spotify wherever or wherever you get your podcast make sure to go check out chasethomaspodcast.com today if you have not already done so uh, all my episodes everything uh, about the show on that particular page uh, make sure to subscribe to the sports renaissance man dot uh, daily newsletter in your inbox so just type in your email uh, very easy very simple sports renaissance man dot and uh, give me a follow twitter.com slash chase double underscore thomas and like the facebook page at facebook.com slash chase thomas writer another new episode coming to you tomorrow on this feed so watch out for that early in the morning uh uncle derek how to do